when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today we're bringing you something a little different. The Code Conference was this week, and we had a great time talking live on stage with all of our guests. We'll be sharing a lot of these conversations here in the coming days, and the first one we're sharing is my chat with Dr. Lisa Soup, the CEO of AMD. Lisa and I spoke for half an hour, and we covered an incredible number of topics, especially about AI and the chip supply chain. These past few years have seen a global chip shortage. Exacerbated by the pandemic and now coming out of it, there's suddenly another big spike in demand, thanks to everyone wanting to run AI models. The balance of supply and demand is overall in a pretty good place right now, Lisa told us, with the notable exception of these high-end GPUs powering all of the large AI models that everyone's running. The hottest GPU in the game is NVIDIA's H100 chip, but AMD is working to compete with a new chip Lisa told us about called the MI300 that should be as fast as the H100. There's also a lot of work being done in software to make it so that developers can move easily between NVIDIA and AMD. So we got into that. You also hear Lisa talk about what companies are doing to increase manufacturing capacity. The Chips in Science Act that recently passed is a great step towards building chip manufacturing here in the United States, but Lisa told us it takes a long time to bring up that supply. So I wanted to know how AMD is looking to diversify the supply chain and make sure it has enough capacity to meet all of this new demand. Finally, Lisa answered questions from the amazing Code audience and talked a lot about how much AMD is using AI inside the company right now. It's more than you think, although Lisa did say AI is not going to be designing chips all by itself anytime soon. Okay, Dr. Lisa Su, CEO of AMD. Here we go. Thank you hello, so much. Hello, hello. Nice hello. to see you. Nice to see you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I have a ton to talk about. 500 cards worth of questions. We're going to be here all night. Uh, but let's start uh, with something exciting. AMD made some news today in the AI market. What's going on? 
Well, I can say, uh, first of all, you know, the theme of this uh, you know, whole conference, AI, it's the theme of everything in tech these days. And when we look at all of the opportunities for you know, computing uh, to really advance AI, that's really what we're working on. So yes, today we um, did have an announcement this morning uh, from a company, a startup called Lemini, a great company that we've been working with, um, some of the top researchers in large language models. And the key for everyone is, when I talk to CEOs, uh, people are all asking, you know, I know I need to pay attention to AI, I know I need to do something, but like, what do I do? It's so complicated, there's so many different factors. And uh, with um, these foundational models um, like Llama, which are you know, great sort of foundational models, uh, many enterprises actually want to customize those models with their own data and ensure that you can do that you know, sort of in your private environment and you know, for your application, and that's what Lemini does. Um, they actually customize models, fine-tune models for enterprises, and they operate on you know, AMD uh, GPUs, and so that was a, a, a cool thing. And we spent you know, a, a bit of time with them, quite a bit of time with them, really optimizing the software and the applications to make it as easy as possible to develop these uh, enterprise you know, fine-tuned models. Yeah, I want to talk about that software in depth. I think it's very interesting where we're abstracting the different levels of software development away from the hardware. But I want to come back to that. I want to begin broadly with the chip market, right? We're exiting a period of pretty incredible constraint in chips sort of across every process node. Where do you think we are now? Well, it's... Uh, interesting, you know, I've been in the semiconductor business for, I don't know, the last 30 years, and for the longest time, people didn't really even understand what semiconductors were or where they were and, you know, where they fit in the overall supply chain and where they uh, were necessary in applications. Um, I think the last few years, especially uh, with the pandemic-driven demand and, um, you know, everything that we're doing with AI, people now are really focused on semiconductors. Um, I think the, there has been um, a tremendous cycle, one, a cycle where uh, we we needed a lot more chips than we had, and then a cycle where we, we had too many of some. Um, but the, at the end of the day, I think uh, the fact is semiconductors are essential to so many applications, and particularly for us, what we're focused on are the most complex, the highest performance, the bleeding edge of semiconductors. And I would say that there's, there's tremendous growth in, um, in, the, in the market. What do you think the bottleneck is now? Is it at the cutting edge? Is it at the older process nodes, which is what we were hearing sort of in the middle of the chip shortage? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think the, um, the industry as a whole has really come together as an ecosystem to put um, a lot of capacity on for the purposes of um, ensuring that we do satisfy overall demand. So in general, I would say that um, you know, the supply-demand balance is in pretty good place, uh, with perhaps the exception of GPUs. If you need GPUs for large language model training and inference, they're probably tight right now. <laughs> A little bit tight. <laughs> Why do you think you're here? Yeah. Uh, and, Lisa's um, got some in the back if you need some. <laughs> uh, but, but look, the truth is we absolutely are putting a tremendous amount of effort getting the entire supply chain ramped up. These are some of the most complex devices in the world. I mean, you know, hundreds of billions of transistors, uh, lots of you know, advanced technology, but um, absolutely ramping up supply overall. The Chips and Science Act passed last year, massive investment in this country in, in fabs. AMD, obviously, largest fabulous semiconductor company in the world. Has that had a noticeable effect yet, or are we still waiting for that to, to come to fruition? 
Well, I do think that um, if you look at you know, the Chips and Science Act and what it's doing for the semiconductor industry in the United States, um, it's really a fantastic thing. I mean, I have to say you know, hats off to um, you know, Gina Raimondo and everything that the Commerce Department is doing with industry. These are long lead time things, right? The semiconductor ecosystem in the U.S. needed to be built you know, sort of five years ago. Um, it is being built, uh, it is expanding now, it's, it's especially at the leading edge, but it's going to take some time. Um, so I don't know that we feel the effects right now, but one of the things that we always believe is, you know, the, um, the more you invest over the longer term, you'll see those effects. So I'm excited about um, onshore capacity. I'm also really um, actually excited about some of the investments in our national research infrastructure, because that's also extremely important um, for, you know, long-term semiconductor, um, you know, strength and leadership. Yeah. You... AMD's results speak for themselves. You're selling a lot more chips than you were a few years ago. Where have you found that supply? Are you still relying on TSMC while you wait for these new fabs to come up? Well, again, when you look at um, sort of the business that we're in, it's pushing the bleeding edge of technology. So we're always on the most advanced node and trying to get you know, the next big innovation um, out uh, there. And there's a combination of both you know, process technology, manufacturing, design, design systems. Um, we are very happy with our partnership with TSMC. They are the best in the world uh, with um, you know, advanced and leading edge technologies. Uh, but they're, you know, we they're also it, think right? Are you, can you diversify away from them? Well, I think the key is geographical diversity, Nile. So when you think about geographical diversity, and, and by the way, this is true no matter what. We, nobody wants to be in the same place because there, there, are, uh, you know, there are just natural risks that happen. Yeah. And, um, and that's where the Chips and Science Act has actually been helpful because there, there are now you know, significant numbers of manufacturing plants being built in the U.S. They're actually going to start uh, you know, production um, you know, over the next um, number of quarters, and you know, we will be active in uh, having some of our manufacturing here in the United States. Yeah. I talked to uh, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger when they broke ground in Ohio. You know, they're, they're trying to become a foundry. He said very confidently to me, I would love to have an AMD logo on the side of one of these fabs. How close is he to making that a reality? Well, I would say this. Uh, I would say that um, from a Onshore manufacturing, we are certainly looking at you know, lots and lots of opportunities. I, I think Pat has a very ambitious plan, and, <laughs> and I think that's, uh, that's there. I think we always look at you know, who are the best manufacturing partners, and you know, what's most important to us is you know, someone who's uh, really dedicated to, to the bleeding edge of technology. Is there a competitor in the market to TSMC on that front? I think there are, uh, there, there's always competition in the market. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, TSMC is certainly very good. You know, Samsung is certainly making a lot of investments. Um, you mentioned Intel. I think there's some, uh, there's some activities in Japan as well uh, to bring up advanced manufacturing. So there are lots of different um, yeah. options. Last question on this thread, and then I do want to talk to about AI. There's a lot of noise recently about Huawei. They put out a seven nanometer chip. This is either an earth shattering geopolitical event or it's bullshit. What do you think it is? <laughs> Let's see. I, w I don't know that I would call it a earth-shattering <laughs> geopolitical <laughs> event. Um, look, I, I think there's no question that you know, technology is, uh, is considered uh, a national security um, you know, 
of importance. And you know, from a U.S. standpoint, I think we want to ensure that you know we keep that lead. Uh, again, I think the uh, the U.S. government has spent a lot of time you know on this um, aspect. You know, the way I look at these things is. You know, we are a global company. Uh, you know, China is an important market for us. Um, we do sell to China more consumer-related goods, you know, versus other things. And there's an opportunity there for us to uh, really have a balanced approach into how we deal with, you know, some of these, um, you know, geopolitical matters. Do you think that there was more supply available at TSMC because Huawei got kicked out of the game? I think TSMC has put a tremendous amount of supply on the table. I mean, that's, uh, if you think about the capex that's happened over the last three or four years, it's uh, it's there because we all need more chips, and when we need more chips, the investment is there. Now, chips are more expensive as a result, and you know that's part of the ecosystem that uh, we've we've built up. Yeah, let's talk about that part of it. So, you mentioned GPUs are constrained. The NVIDIA H100. There's effectively a black market for access to these chips. You have some chips. You're coming out with some new ones. You just announced you know, laminized training fully in your chips. Have you seen opportunity to to disrupt this market because NVIDIA supply is so constrained? I would take a step back, Neela, and just talk about just what's happening in the AI market because it's incredible what's happening. I mean, if you think about you know the technology trends that we've seen over the last you know whatever 10, 20 years, whether you're talking about you know the internet or the mobile phone uh, revolution or you know how PCs have changed things, like AI is like you know like. 10 times, 100 times more than that in terms of how it's impacting everything that we do. So if you talk about enterprise productivity, if you talk about personal productivity or uh, you know, society, what we can do from a productivity standpoint, it's that big. So the fact that there's a shortage of GPUs, um, I think is not surprising because people recognize how important the technology is. Uh, now, uh, we're in such the early innings of how um, AI and especially generative AI is coming to market that I view this as like you know, a 10-year cycle that we're talking about, not like a, you know, how many GPUs can you get in the next two to four quarters. Uh, we are excited about our roadmap. I think you know, with high-performance computing, I would call generative AI you know, kind of the, uh, the killer app uh, for high-performance computing. Uh, you need more and more and more. And as good as you know, today's large language model is, um, it can still get better if you had, uh, you know, you continue to increase the training performance and the inference performance. And so that's what we do. We build the most complex chips. Uh, we do have a new one coming out. Um, it's called um, MI300, if, uh, if you want the, uh, the code name there. And it's, it's going to be fantastic. You know, it's targeted at large language model training as well as large language model inference. And um, what we view is, you know, your question of do we see opportunity? Uh, yes, I mean, we see significant opportunity. And it's not just in one place. You know, the idea of the cloud guys are, are you know, sort of the only users, that's not true. I mean, there's going to be a lot of enterprise um, AI. Uh, a lot of the startups have, you know, tremendous um, you know, sort of a VC backing around um, AI as well. And so we see, you know, opportunity across all of those spaces. So uh, MI300? MI300, you got it. You heard it here first. Performance-wise, this is going to be competitive with the H100 or exceed the H100? Uh, it is uh, definitely going to be competitive um, from, you know, training workloads type things. But one of the things that... Uh, 
you know, we've done. And in um, the AI market, there's no one-size-fits-all um, as it relates to uh, you know, chips. Um, there are some that are going to be um, exceptional for training. Uh, there are some that are going to be exceptional for inference. Uh, and you know, that depends on how you put it together. At what we've done with MI300 is we've built um, an exceptional uh, product for inference, uh, especially large language model inference. So when we look going forward, uh, much of what work is done right now is uh, companies kind of training and deciding what their models are going to be. But going forward, we actually think inference is going to be a larger market. And uh, that uh, plays well into uh, some of what we've you know, designed MI300 for. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about AI software stacks, something called PyTorch in custom chips. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back talking about how you develop for AI. If you look at what sort of the you know, Wall Street thinks NVIDIA's mode is, it's CUDA, it's the proprietary software stack, it's the long-running relationships with developers. You have Rockham, which is a little different. Do you think that that's a, a mode that you can overcome with, with better products or with a more open approach? How are, you, how are you going about attacking that? I'm not a believer in moats when um, the market is moving as fast as it is. I mean, when you think about moats, it's, it's more sort of uh, mature markets where uh, you know, people are not really wanting to change things a lot. Uh, when you look at generative AI, I mean, it's moving at an incredible pace. I mean, the, the progress that we're making in you know, a few months in a regular you know, sort of development environment might have taken a few years. Uh, and software in particular, uh, you know, our approach is, uh, is an open software approach. There's actually a dichotomy. Um, if you look at people who have developed software sort of 
over the last five or seven or eight years, they've tended to use, let's call it more hardware-specific software. Um, it was convenient. Uh, there weren't that many choices out there, and so that's what people did. Uh, when you look at you know, going forward, actually, what you, what you find is everyone's looking for the ability to build hardware-agnostic uh, software because People want choice. I mean, you know, frankly, people want choice. People want to use their older um, infrastructure. People want to um, ensure that they're able to, you know, move from, uh, you know, one infrastructure to another infrastructure. And so they're building on these higher levels of software, things like, you know, PyTorch, uh, for example, which, uh, which tends to be that hardware agnostic capability. So I do think the next 10 years are going to be different from the last 10 um, as it relates to how do you develop uh, within AI. And I think we're seeing that across, you know, sort of the industry and the ecosystem. And the benefit of an open approach is that, you know, that there's no one company that has all of the ideas, and so the more we're able to bring the ecosystem together, we get to take advantage of um, all of those you know, you know, really, really smart developers uh, who want to accelerate AI learning. PyTorch is a big deal, right? This is the language that all these models are actually coded in. I talk to a bunch of you know, cloud CEOs. They don't love their dependency on NVIDIA as much as anybody doesn't love being dependent on any one vendor. Is this a place where you can go work with those cloud providers and say, we're going to optimize our chips for PyTorch and not CUDA, and developers can just run on PyTorch and pick whichever is best optimized? That, that, that's exactly it. So if you think about you know, what PyTorch is trying to do, it really is trying to be that sort of hardware agnostic layer. And you know, one of the sort of major milestones that we've come up with is on PyTorch 2.0, you know, AMD was qualified on sort of day one. And what that means is you know, anybody who runs code on PyTorch right now, it will run on AMD you know, sort of out of the box because we've done, uh, we've done the work there. And, and frankly, it'll run on other hardware as well. But you know, our goal is to make it uh, you know, sort of may the best chip win. And the way you do that is to make the software uh, you know, much more seamless. And it's, you know, it's PyTorch, but it's also Jax. It's also some of the tools that OpenAI is bringing in with Triton. There are lots of different uh, tools and um, you know, frameworks that people are bringing forward uh, that are hardware agnostic. There are a bunch of people who are also doing you know, sort of build your own um, types of things. So I, I do think this is the wave of the future for AI software. Are you building custom chips for any of these companies? We have the capability of building custom chips. And you know, the way I think about it is uh, the time to build custom chips is actually when um, you get very high volume applications you know, going forward. So I do believe there will be custom chips um, you know, over uh, the next uh, number of years. Uh, the other piece that's also interesting is you need all different types of engines for AI. So you know, we spend a lot of time talking about big GPUs because that's what's needed for training large language models. Um, but you're also going to see um, you know, ASICs for some, you know, let's call it uh, more, more narrow applications. Um, you're also, also going to see um, AI in sort of client chips. So I'm pretty excited about that as well um, in terms of just you know, how broad AI will be incorporated into you know, chips across all of the market segments. I've got Kevin Scott, CTO of Microsoft, here tomorrow, so I'll ask you this question so I can chase him down with it. If, say, Microsoft wanted to diversify Azure and put more AMD in there and be invisible to customers, is that possible right now? Well, first of all, um, I love Kevin Scott. He's a great guy, and we have a, a tremendous partnership with Microsoft uh, across you know, both the cloud as well as uh, the Windows environment. Um, I think you should ask him the question, but I think if you were to ask him or if you were to ask a bunch of other cloud uh, manufacturers, they would say it's, it's absolutely possible. I mean, it, yes, it takes work. 
it takes work that you know, we each have to put in, but it's much less work than you might have imagined because uh, people are actually designing at these higher level, uh, they're, they're writing code at the higher level frameworks. And um, you know, we, we believe that you know, this is the wave of the future for um, AI programming. Let me connect this to an end user application just for a second. We're talking about things that are very much rising the cost curve, right? You're a lot of smart people doing a lot of work to develop for really high-end GPUs on the cutting-edge process nodes. Everything's just getting more expensive. And you see how the consumer applications are expensive. $25 a month, $30 a seat for Microsoft Office with Copilot. When do you come down the cost curve that brings those consumer prices down? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. Um, I do believe that you know, sort of the value that you get with Gen AI in terms of productivity uh, will absolutely be proven out. So yes, the cost of these infrastructures are are high right now, uh, but the productivity that you get on the other side is also exciting. I mean, you know, we're we're deploying AI internally within AMD, and it's it's like such high priority <laughs> because if I can get chips out faster, I mean, that's huge productivity. Do you trust it? Do you have your people checking the work that the AI is doing, or do you trust it? Sure, sure. I mean, look. We're all experimenting, right? I mean, we're, we're in the very, very early stages of building the tools and the infrastructure so that we can deploy. Um, but the fact is, um, it saves us time. You know, whether we're designing chips, where we're testing chips, where we're validating chips, um, it saves us time, and time is money in our world. But back to your question about when do you get to the other side of the curve, uh, I think that's why it's so important to think about AI broadly and not just in the cloud, right? So if you think about um, uh, the, you know, sort of how the ecosystem will look a few years from now, you would imagine a place where, uh, yes, you have, you know, sort of the cloud infrastructures training these, you know, largest foundational models, but you're also going to have a bunch of um, AI at the edge. And, you know, whether it's in your PC or it's in your phone, uh, you're going to be able to do, you know, local AI. And, and there, uh, it's, it's cheaper. Um, it is faster and it is uh, actually more private uh, when you do that. And so um, that's this idea of AI everywhere and how it can really um, uh, you know, sort of enhance the way we're, we're deploying. That brings me to open source and honestly to the, the idea of how we will regulate this. So I've been, you know, we, there's a White House meeting, everyone participates. Great. Everyone's very proud of each other. Uh, you think about how you will actually enforce AI regulation. And it's, okay, you can probably tell AWS or Azure not to run certain work streams, right? You don't do these things. And that seems fine. Can you tell AMD to not let certain things happen on the chips for somebody running an open source model on Linux on their laptop? Yeah, look, I think it is something that we all take you know, very seriously. I think we want um, the technology has so much uh, upside in terms of you know, what it can do from a productivity and a um, discovery standpoint, but you know, there's also this you know, sort of safety uh, in AI. And I do think that as large companies, we have a responsibility. Um, you know, if you think about you know, the, the two things around you know, sort of data privacy uh, as well as just overall um, ensuring that you know, as these models are developed, that they're developed without, uh, to the best of our ability without too much bias, uh, we're going to make mistakes. I mean, you know, the, the industry as a whole will not be perfect here. Uh, but I think there is you know, clarity around uh, it's important and that we need to do it together and that there needs to be a public-private partnership you know, to make it think, happen. I'm not, I can't remember anyone's name, so I'll be a horrible politician, but let's pretend I'm a regulator. I'm going to do it. And I say, boy, I really don't want these kids 
using any model to develop chemical weapons using, and I need to figure out where to land that enforcement. I can definitely tell Azure, don't do that. But a kid with an AMD chip and a Dell laptop running Linux, I have no mechanism of enforcement except to tell you to make the chip not do it. Would you accept that regulation? I don't think it's a, uh, there's a silver bullet. Yeah. It's not a, I can make the chip not do it. I can make the combination of the chip and the model uh, and, you know, sort of have some safeguards in place. And we're absolutely willing to be at that table to, to help that happen. So you would accept that kind of regulation, that the chip will be constrained? I, I, would, I would, yes. I would accept an opportunity for us to look at, you know, what are the safeguards that we would yeah. need to put in place. I think this is going to be one of the most complicated. I don't think we expect our chips to be limited in what we can do. And that it feels like this is a question we have to ask and answer. Yeah. And, and let me say again, it's, it's not the chip by itself, right? Yeah. Because in, in general, um, you know, chips are, are, have broad capability. It's the chips plus the software and the models, uh, particularly on the model side, you know, what, what you do in terms of safeguards. We could start lining up for questions. I've just got a couple more for you. You're in the PS5. You're in the Xbox. There's a view of the world that says cloud gaming is the future of all things. That might be great for you because you'll be in their data centers too. But do you see that shift underway? Is that for real or are we still doing console generations? Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, gaming is everywhere. I mean, gaming is everywhere in every form factor. There's been this long conversation about, you know, is this the end of console gaming? And, you know, I don't see it. I see PC gaming strong, I see console gaming strong, and I see cloud gaming, um, you know, also having, uh, having legs. And, you know, they all need similar types of uh, technology, but they, they obviously use it in different ways. We have to take a quick break. We'll be back with some sharp questions from our code audience for Lisa. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We're back with AMD CEO, Dr. Lisa Sue. Please introduce yourself. Hi, Lisa. Alan Lee, Analog Devices. One and a half years after the Xilinx acquisition, how do you see adaptive computing playing out in AI? Yeah, so uh, first of all, it's nice to see you, Alan. Um, I think the, uh, you know, first of all, the, the Xilinx acquisition was an acquisition we, we completed about 18 months ago. Um, fantastic ac acquisition, you know, brought a lot of IP um, into our, um, you know, sort of, 
high, high performance IP with um, adaptive uh, computing IP. Um, and I, I do see that uh, particularly on these AI engines, um, sort of engines that are optimized for uh, you know, sort of data flow architectures, that's one of the things that we were able to bring in as part of Xilinx. That's actually the IP that is now going into PCs. And so we see uh, you know, significant um, you know, sort of IP uh, you know, usage there. And um, together, as we go forward, you know, I have this belief that there's no one computer that is you know, the right one. There, you actually need the right computing for the right application. So whether it's CPUs or GPUs or FPGAs or adaptive SOCs, you need all of those. And uh, that's the ecosystem that, uh, that we're bringing together. Thanks. This tall gentleman over here. Hi, uh, Casey Newton from Platformer. I, I wanted to return to Neelai's uh, question about regulation. Uh, someday, sad to say, but somebody might try to acquire a bunch of your GPUs for the express purpose of doing harm, right? Training a large language model for that purpose. And so I wonder, what sort of regulations, if any, do you think government should place around who gets access to large numbers of GPUs or, and what size training runs they're allowed to do? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good question. I, I don't think we know the answer to that, uh, particularly in terms of how to regulate. Uh, our, our goal is, um, you know, again, uh, within all of the export controls that are out there, because GPUs are export controlled, uh, that, um, that we follow, you know, those regulations. There are, you know, sort of the biggest, and then there are the, you know, sort of the next level of GPUs that are there. Uh, I think the key is, you know, again, as I said, it's, it's a combination of both chip and model uh, development um, that really, uh, you know, comes about. Out. And uh, you know we're active at those tables and talking about um, you know how to do those things. Um, I think we want to ensure that uh, you know we are uh, very protective of the highest performing uh, GPUs, but also you know it's it's an important market where lots of people want access. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel from uh, DR. Um, to return something you talked about earlier, because you are everyone here is thinking about implementing AI in their internal workflows. And it's just so interesting to hear about your thoughts because you have access to the chips and deep machine learning knowledge. Can you specify a bit what are you using AI internally for in the chip making process and anything? Because this might point us, point us in the right direction. Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. I, I think every business is looking at how to um, implement AI. So for us, uh, for example, I look at it at, you know, there's the engineering functions and the non-engineering, so sales, marketing, data analytics, all of those lead generation, those are all places where AI can be very useful. Um, on the engineering side, uh, we look at it in terms of, um, you know, how can we, uh, you know, build, uh, fast, build chips fast Faster. So uh, they help us with design, they help us with test generation, they help us with manufacturing diagnostics. You know, back to Neelay's question, do I trust it to build a chip with no humans involved? No, of course not. <laughs> I mean, we have, we have lots of engineers. I think co-pilot functions in particular um, are, uh, are actually uh, fairly easy to adopt. Um, you know, pure generative AI, we need to you know, check and make sure that it works. Um, but it's a learning process. And you know, the key, I would say, is uh, there's um, lots of experimentation and fast cycles of learning are, are important. So, uh, we, you know, we've actually have, you know, dedicated teams that are, you know, spending their time looking at how we bring AI into um, our, um, our company uh, development processes as, as fast as possible. Thank you. Hi, Jay Peters with The Verge. Apple seems to be making a much bigger push in how its devices, and particularly its M-series chips, are really good for AAA gaming. Are you worried about Apple on that front at all? 
Well, yeah, they told me that this, I don't have my phone on me, but they told me the iPhone 15 Pro is the world's best game console. And that's why it's Pro. It's a very confusing situation. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, would, I would say, uh, look, um, as I said earlier, gaming is um, such an important application when you think about entertainment and what we're doing with it. I mean, I, I always think about all co competition, but from my standpoint, it's um, how do we get, you know, it's, it's not just the hardware, it's really how do we get um, the gaming ecosystem, you know, people want to be able to take their games wherever um, and play with their friends and on, on different platforms. Those are, you know, options that we have with the gaming ecosystem today. Uh, we're going to continue to push the envelope on the highest performing you know, PCs and, and console chips, and um, I think we're going to be uh, pretty good. Thank you. Thank right. you. I have one more for you. If you listen to Decoder, you know I love asking people about decisions. Chip CEOs have to make the longest range decisions of basically anybody I can think of. What's the longest term bet you're making right now? Uh, we are, we are um, we're definitely designing for the five-plus year cycle. So when I think about for, you know, I, I talked to you today about MI300. We made you know, some of those architectural decisions um, you know, four or five years ago. And the thought process there was, hey, where's the world going? What kind of computing do you need? Um, being very ambitious in you know, our goals and what we were trying to do. So yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about what we're building for uh, the next five years. I think we're... What's uh, the bet you're making right now? Uh, we're, we're, we're betting on what the, the next big thing in AI is. Okay. Thank you, Lisa. All right. I did my best. I'd like to thank Dr. Lisa Sue for talking to me at the Code Conference, and especially to the Code audience for coming to the show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed Decoder. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I read all the emails. Or you can hit me up directly on threads. I'm at reckless1280. We also have a TikTok. Check it out. It's at decoderpod. It's a lot of fun. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really love the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Statt. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.